Welcome to IFL Science The Big Questions, the podcast where we invite the experts to explore the biggest mysteries of science with your host, Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti. The dream of immortality is probably as old as humanity itself, and as science has helped expand our lifespan, it has many wondering if there is a limit. However, it is not just dealing with death, but also with aging. There is a cautionary tale in mythology. The Trojan prince Titanus was granted immortality by his lover Eos, the goddess of the dawn, but not eternal youth. So living longer cannot be a goal in itself if the ravages of age keep up with us. Hello and welcome to another episode of IFL Science The Big Questions. Our query for today is one that many have probably wondered. Can humans live forever? And to help us answer this and related questions, we have uh, Dr. Andrew Steele. Hello, Hello Andrew. Very good, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself? So yeah, as you just said, my name's Andrew Steele. I'm a uh, physicist turned biologist. So I actually started out by doing a PhD in physics before deciding that aging was the single most important scientific challenge of our time. So I ended up working as a biologist for a few years. And then during that time, I realized that nobody knows that much about aging biology, you know, including biologists, including doctors. So that's one of the things that really inspired me to write a book about this. So um, I'm also an author of a book called Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old, which is all about the latest developments in aging biology that will hopefully allow us to do just that. Wonderful. So you are the right person to ask all these questions. Uh, uh, let's start with the big one from the get-go. Can humans live forever? Well, I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions around aging research is that as soon as you talk about talk, doing something about aging, people suddenly ask, you know, is this about immortality? A really popular thing at the moment is are the billionaires trying to live forever? So you've got these investments by people like Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, who's put literally billions of dollars of his own money into this startup that's trying to develop anti-aging treatments. But actually, this isn't about living forever. And, you know, first of all, let's just, just have a think about what it would mean for humans to live forever. Even young people still occasionally die of infectious diseases. You've obviously all heard far too much about COVID in the last few years and there's other infectious diseases out there too. You can always get hit by a bus. So there are a variety of different things that can kill you, no matter what your age is. And what aging research really wants to do is to change how our risk of death with time changes. So let's have a think about what that means. Uh, I'm 36, and what that means is that my odds of death this year are somewhere around one in a thousand. And I quite like those odds, because if you think about that, you know, if, if that was to extend for the rest of my life, I'd live another thousand years on average, I'd make it into my thousand and thirties. But obviously that isn't what happens. Our risk of death as humans doubles about every eight years. And what that means is that if you keep on doubling it and doubling it and doubling it, eventually it starts getting very big very quickly. So if I'm lucky enough to make it to 80 and medical technology hasn't changed in the intervening time, I'll have about a one in 20, so a 5% chance of not making my 81st birthday. And if you're a 90 year old today, you have about a one in six chance of dying before you make your next birthday. That's life and death at the roll of a dice. And you know that, that, that just staggered me. This is actually the reason that I moved from physics to biology, which is you know, understanding the sheer scale of the rise in the risk of death. So that's the, the case for humans. But the one time I will allow you to use the word immortality is if we're talking about something called biological immortality. And th this isn't sort of true immortality. It's not about living forever. But if you look at a lot of animals in the animal kingdom and 
a really good example of this is the Galapagos tortoise. The reason there's a Galapagos tortoise on the front cover of my hardback is because this is one of these animals that is biologically immortal. And what that means, as I say, isn't that it lives forever, but it just has a risk of death that doesn't change depending on how long ago it was born. So a Galapagos tortoise as an adult has about a 1% or 2% chance of dying every year. And that chance of dying just stays completely flat throughout its adult life. And one consequence of this is they live an incredibly long time. So the longest lived Galapagos tortoise on record made it to about 175 years old, we think. And she died of a heart attack, but at 175 rather than 75 like a human might. But actually what's more interesting from the point of view of aging biology isn't that they live an incredibly long time. It's that their risk of death is flat. This biological immortality, this fact that they're, it's actually called negligible senescence is the more technical term because negligible just meaning not much. Senescence meaning um, the sort of biological word for getting old. And what we can see is they're not just not dying, they're not getting frail, they're not in increased risk of diseases because of course it's things like cancer, the heart disease, all these diseases we know are associated with aging, they're what kills you. So these tortoises literally get older without getting old. And so, you know, it's not against the laws of physics, um, it's not against the laws of biology because we can see animals out there in the animal kingdom actually doing it. The question is, can we squash that change in risk of death with time for humans at least a little bit and try and live a little bit longer in good health as a result? So that's what really excites me about this aging biology research is the idea of trying to live longer and most importantly do it in good health without those diseases, without the cancer, without the heart disease, without the Alzheimer's. That is fascinating. Although I keep thinking that one in a thousand, uh, I am similar age of you, uh, is still quite, quite high <laughs> for one in a million. <laughs> Well, as long as you're careful. So the thing is, a lot of the stuff that kills us at our age, it's accidental causes of death. It is things like road accidents. So if you can dodge some of those accidental causes of death, you know, if you can be careful on the road, if you drive a bit less, that sort of stuff, you can really start to reduce that number down quite a lot. You know, in the next sort of 10 or 20 years, we're going to start getting to the, the kinds of risks that you can't do so much about, which is the, you know, the risk of cancer, the risk of heart disease. Obviously, you can, you know, you can exercise, you can eat well and try and reduce that risk as well. But inevitably, at some point, age does catch up with all of us, no matter how well you live. So uh, yeah, for now, stay safe and stay exercising. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, aging catches up with all of us, which is another reason I'm so excited by these therapies, because they could do something about that seeming inevitability of life. So the general idea is to extend the portion of our lives that would be healthy. Aging researchers often call this the health span. Uh, if you want to tell us a little uh, bit more, but do you think there is a limit uh, to uh, how long we can uh, expand that? So, or there are any indication clearly as uh, um, time has progressed uh, over the last uh, uh, several decades because of improvement uh, in health and society, our lifespan has increased. And my understanding is also this uh, health span has increased. Do we think there is a limit? Do we think that there is uh, a point and after which uh, then we cannot, uh, can no longer fight biology or physics? I think that's a very interesting question. I think the, the answer looking at the animal kingdom is basically no. You know, these, these animals, they have risks of death that stay completely flat for as long as we watch them. And unfortunately, of course, these experiments, if you're going to do them thoroughly, take a really, really long time. So let's take an example of another negligibly senescent, so biologically immortal creature, something called a hydra. And it's a tiny little sort of centimetre long pond creature. So it's quite a long way from us, evolutionarily speaking. We perhaps can't go all the way to the achievement the hydra has. But its risk of death per year is about 0.2%. Now, you'll note that's actually higher than that one in a thousand that you and me are sort of facing down every year. So it's, it's already a little bit higher than that. But nonetheless, we think that about 10% of hydra based on that would be still living after a thousand years, which is obviously an incredible lifespan. But the problem being, as I said, you know, we haven't yet had time having made that observation to do that experiment and watch them for the decades and decades and centuries it would take to finally get to that answer. 
I think what's really interesting about human lifespan is that exactly as you say, our, um, our, our the length of time that we live for and the length of time we're healthy for has been increasing for hundreds of years. Throughout the last 200 years, life expectancy in the top performing country in the world, and that's obviously shifted around depending on who's, uh, who's winning in any particular year, but that's gone up by about three months per year every single year the line is just like astonishingly straight as a physicist you know you don't expect to see a straight line in you know data like that and yet sort of tick tock every year we get an additional three months of life expectancy and this has been caused by this sort of constellation of factors so back in the 1800s when this first started out it was mainly due to the reduction in things like infectious diseases and that meant that particularly because they affected young people they had a really big effect on the life expectancy and when i say young people you know i mean infants and kids so you know if you die if you let's go back you know all the to the beginning of the 18th century you probably only had a bit more than a 50 50 chance of making it out of your teenage years and actually if you did make it to 20 or so then you had a decent chance of making it to 50 or even 60 years old you know sort of beginning to be old by modern standards but the overall life expectancy was just really really dragged down by the massive massive toll of infant mortality so at first we started you know curing a lot of these diseases we had um, first of all it was sort of hygiene and improving sewage and all sort of you know what might sound like quite boring public health stuff but it had a huge huge impact on life expectancy and then of course we had vaccines we had antibiotics we had the sort of medicine that could deal with infectious disease at the beginning of the 20th century and then um, as, as people's lives started to extend that's when we really started to move the needle on older life expectancy so from the 1950s onwards most of the uh, advance in life expectancy at least in the rich countries has been driven by improvements in cancer care improvements in heart disease care and that sort of stuff also the lifestyle factors you know we, we eat better and we exercise more although people are getting fatter in general around the world the general tendency has been for lifestyles to improve so it's been this sort of constellation of different things and I think actually, you know, it's worth st stepping back and just looking at the huge achievement this is. It's, I think, arguably humanity's greatest achievement. We've literally doubled what it means to be human over the course of a couple of centuries, which is incredible. Life expectancy has gone from about 40 to about 80 in the best performing countries in the rich world now. I think it's even 85 in the sort of world leader Japan. So that's, that's a really incredible achievement. But what's most incredible about this to me is that we've achieved this entire um, feat without a single medicine that targets the aging process. So we've got our medicine for heart disease, we can lower your blood pressure, we can do all kinds of things to prevent or you know, help people who've had heart attacks and that kind of thing. We've got chemotherapy, we've got radiotherapy to treat people who've got cancer. We've got a whole range of different medical interventions. But all of these target not the aging process that causes those diseases, but they target the sort of end points of that process. They target the cancerous cells, they target the buildup of plaque in your arteries. And nothing yet has gone after that whole global aging process, which is by far the biggest sort of risk for all of these diseases. And so I'm just really excited by the idea. If we can treat aging, what that means is we can reduce the risk not just of cancer, not just of heart disease, not just of dementia, not just of frailty, not just of wrinkles and grey hair. You know, even the cosmetic stuff is caused by the same sort of fundamental underlying molecular biology basically and so given that we've achieved all of that without even trying on the aging process I'm just really excited about what we will be able to achieve once we actually do target it in earnest wow so I think my next question is uh, how are we trying to target uh, the aging process as a whole uh, what uh, has been uh, attempted so far what has been discovered how far away are to develop uh, the understanding or the drugs to actually treat uh, uh, aging 
It's a great question. And actually, in the last sort of 10, 20 years, things have really, really come on in leaps and bounds. And I think one of the things that's most exciting about it is that we finally got almost a consensus. I'm not going to say consensus because that's very hard to get among scientists, but there's almost a consensus about what the causes, the underlying things that change during the aging process that do increase our risk of disease. And in the book, I break it down to 10 what are called hallmarks of the aging process, which is named after a 2013 scientific paper with the same name. They actually had nine. A couple of things have happened in the intervening years. I moved some stuff around. But basically, you know, that's sort of a a relatively comprehensive list of what we think are the kinds of things like damage that happens as you get older, uh, changes in your biology, changes in the signals that your cells send to each other, and all these different kinds of factors that can happen on the very smallest level. It can be damage to your DNA, so the tiny little you know, molecules in the size, the nucleus of every cell that carry your genetic code, all the way up to the damage of whole systems in the body, so things like the immune system getting weaker as we get older. And the combined effect of all of these things is the increase in the risk of the diseases that we see. And so I think actually the clearest example of what an anti-aging treatment would look like is targeting a specific hallmark. And the idea is that by slowing down or even reversing that hallmark, you can slow down or even reverse the aging process and thereby reduce the risk of all these different things happening. And the clearest example I can think of at the moment, actually one of the most exciting in terms of near-term drug development as well, are something called senescent cells. This is one of the hallmarks of aging. And senescent, we've already come across that word, it's the biological term for getting older. These are cells that are basically, you know, getting old, getting clapped out. They've been around in your body for a long time. They're often divided too many times. Maybe they've got a lot of damage to their DNA, a lot of mutations. That means your body thinks they might be turning into a sort of cancer. And so therefore, what your body does is it slams on the brakes. It says to this cell, you're going to stop dividing. You can't divide anymore. And that's great because when we're young, those cells reduce our risk of cancer because maybe that's what they're at risk of becoming. And they send out this cocktail of molecules and the molecules are basically signals to the immune system. They say, hey, over here, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm this senescent cell. I shouldn't be here. Come and clear me up. And when you're young, you have a really sort of vibrant, active immune system. It runs over a macrophage, gobbles up one of these, um, one of these senescent cells. And that sort of keeps the process in this stable equilibrium. But unfortunately, as we get older, a variety of things mean that these cells become more and more common. So for a start, our cells are divided more just because we've been around for longer. We're getting more and more damage to our DNA and that kind of thing just because we've had you know, time for that damage to accumulate. And also, our immune systems are getting weaker, so they're getting less good at clearing up these cells. And it turns out that this cocktail of molecules that the senescent cells emit it doesn't just attract over the immune system. It also seems to accelerate the whole aging process. So when these chemicals get too high in their concentration, they can increase the risk of a whole range of different age-related diseases, you know, things like heart disease, things like dementia. And ironically, these senescent cells, even though we think evolutionarily they're an anti-cancer mechanism, when there are too many of them, it can actually increase your risk of cancer as well. So that all sounds like a very depressing thing. You know, we're accumulating these cells. There's not much we can do about it. You know, they increase our risk of disease and frailty as we get older. The good news is we have drugs and they're called senolytic drugs that can kill the senescent cells and leave the rest of the cells of the body intact. And there was an experiment done in mice in 2018 where scientists gave mice some of these senolytic drugs and they waited until the mice were quite old. They're about two years old, uh, which is about 60 in human years because obviously mice have much, much shorter lifespans than we do. And they found that by giving the mice this senolytic drug, they removed the senescent cells and they effectively made the mice biologically younger. So what they found was uh, they lived a little bit longer, which I guess is good, but they weren't dragging out that period of frailty at the end of life. They were increasing their health span as well as their lifespan. So they got less cancer, they got less heart disease. Um, they, they had better cognitive performance. So if you put a mouse in a maze, then a young mouse is often very exploratory. It's very excited in its new environment. Can it find the food, etc., etc. But an older mouse might be a bit more anxious. Maybe it's just a bit more frail. And so they don't do so much exploration. But giving the mice these senolytic drugs seemed to increase their, uh, sort of rejuvenate their youthful curiosity. The, the mice also are able to run further and faster on tiny little mouse-sized treadmills they're using these experiments so they've got this little, little mouse gym they can test out their various muscles in and they find that mice just do better in all of those when you remove their senescent cells and finally these mice 
they just look fantastic. So when I was a, a biologist, I was a computational biologist. I, I barely set a foot in the lab. I just sat with a computer all day. And even to my like wildly untrained eye, it's really worth looking for some pictures of these on the internet. The mice that have had the senolytic drugs, they look great. They've got thicker, uh, plumper skin. They've got less gray fur. They've got thicker fur. You know, all of the cosmetic stuff that a lot of people worry about, you know, anti-aging skin creams and that sort of stuff. That also seems to be caused by these same underlying hallmarks of aging. And so the idea is that we might be able to give these drugs preventatively. So rather than waiting until someone gets cancer and giving them chemotherapy, hopefully at some point we're going to get to the stage where as we understand more about these drugs as they get more effective, and most importantly as they get safer, we really start to understand if there are any side effects. We'll hopefully be able to hand them out preventatively. You know, say you're 50, say you're 60 years old, you've accumulated enough of these senescent cells that they're starting to become a problem, and your doctor can give you one of these senolytic drugs, clear out those cells, and hopefully you know, reverse the aging process in your body. And that's, a, that's going to be a few years away. But actually, excitingly, they're already in human trials, these drugs. This isn't just some you know, wacky experiment in mice. They're currently trialing them for conditions where we know that senescent cells are a problem. So there's one called lung fibrosis, for example, which is a, an age-related disease where you basically get scarring in your lung tissue. And we think that senescent cells are implicated. And this is a disease that's got quite a poor prognosis. There aren't really any uh, particularly promising treatments at the moment. So these patients, they've got a, you know, a bad disease, basically. They're willing to take a bit of a punt on this slightly untested new treatment. But if that drug works, and most importantly, if it's safe, we'll start giving it to people with less and less serious conditions. And eventually, hopefully, we'll be giving it to people who at the moment the medical system would classify as healthy. And I think that's the real dream of anti-aging medicine is to get, give people drugs that will slow down or reverse these hallmarks before they get unwell in the first place. And hopefully sort of push down that risk of death increasing with time. Wow, that is fantastic. Yeah, maybe the immediate future is not uh, so great, but the far future looks like very promising. I don't even think it's that far in the future, and I think that's something that's really worth emphasizing. So these senolytic drugs that are in trials, they've been in trials for a few years already. We're going to start getting the first results you know, pretty, pretty soon. And this is the sort of thing where if it works, there's not really any reason why in the next 10 years we couldn't see something that starts to roll these things out preventatively. And there are a load of other drugs in the pipeline as well. So there are things like repurposed existing drugs. So there's a drug called metformin that actually, you know, a lot of your listeners might might even be taking. It's one of the most commonly prescribed medicines in the world. It's a diabetes drug. And there are some hints that it slows down the aging process. And once a trial is done into that, if that works, it costs literally, you know, pence per pill. It's incredibly cheap. It's got very, very low side effect profile because we've been prescribing it in the UK since the 1950s. So we really, really know about this drug. If it works, we could you know, start handing it out very, very rapidly. And there are loads of other things in the pipeline, you know, things like gene therapy and stem cell therapy. And these do sound a bit more sci-fi and further into the future. But these are sort of decades into the future. They're not centuries into the future. And so if you're, well, if you're 36, I don't want to make this all about me, but if you are 36 and you're expecting to live, you know, at least another four or five decades, even with current life expectancy as it stands, and hopefully you can benefit from that first generation of senolytics. Hopefully you can exercise and eat well and you know, not get hit by a bus. Obviously, there's not much you can do about that. But if you can manage all those things, a lot of these treatments are going to arrive in time for most people are alive today. So I'm genuinely, you know, really excited about this in the short term. Fantastic. Uh, I think my final question is, what do you think are going to be the societal impact of having uh, an older population that might live a bit uh, or a lot longer, but with a much healthier lifespan? It's a great question. I'm really glad you added that last bit on the end because I think that's a bit a lot of people forget. The fact they're healthier really, really changes the calculation here. Because if you're giving people drugs that would like drag out your period spent in the care home, basically, nobody wants to live to 120 and spend their last 40 years in a home. What we want to do is, you know, we want to be vibrant and from a societal point of view, we want to be contributing to the economy. We don't just want to be a burden. And actually, that's the most important thing. And I think the most the, the real key takeaway for me from this, and something that's sort of almost forgotten sometimes by people who ask about the social consequences, 
is just how massive the positive consequences would be. So every single day on planet Earth, 150,000 people die of various things. And this is in all the countries of the world, not just the rich ones. But of those 150,000, over 100,000 are killed by aging. They're killed by the cancer, the heart disease, the dementia. And these aren't diseases that just, you know, you go to bed one night and don't wake up the next morning, sort of painless disappearance off the face of the earth. They often involve suffering over years or even decades. There can be very grueling treatments for things like cancer. I think aging is arguably the world's largest cause of human suffering. So on the sort of pros side of the social change, we're going to have, yes, we're going to have extended lifespans, but most importantly, we're going to have massively reduced suffering from all of these horrible diseases. And so I just think that's by far the biggest societal consequence. And sometimes people forget about it because they ask, oh, you know, aren't the billionaires going to live forever? What are we going to do about global population? Forgetting that there's this, you know, enormous benefit that you somehow have to find a disbenefit that counteracts in order to argue against this kind of research. Just to give a little example, I think, because this is, you know, these are important questions. There are going to be sort of seismic changes to our society in some ways. I think the question I get asked most often is, what about the population? You know, what, what are we going to do if, you know, let, let's imagine people start living to 100 or 120. If they're not dying, they're obviously going to be sticking around for longer. Babies are still being born. What are we going to do with all the extra people? Where are they going to live? You know, what, what food are they going to eat? Isn't that going to be a terrible uh, problem for the climate and for the rest of the environment? And I'm really sympathetic to this. I almost became a climate physicist at the end of my physics PhD, but then you know, eventually decided on aging biology, as we just talked about. And actually, I think the consequences of this for the climate are far smaller than most people really appreciate. So I tried to do, I'm, I'm by no means a demographic modeler, but I tried to do a really simple exercise where I said, let's imagine, let's, let's imagine the most ridiculous out there assumption we can come up with. Let's imagine we cure aging in 2025. And that means suddenly, you know, of those, those 100,000 people who die every day of aging, they're, they're just not going to die anymore. They're going to carry on trucking. And, you know, they'll still die of other stuff, but it'll just be at a much, much older age and they'll be healthier for much, much longer. What would that do to global population? Now, that's obviously ridiculously extreme. Not only do we have to complete all the science in the next three years, we also have to roll out these drugs to everyone in the entire world. So this is this is an absurd sort of, I guess, worst case scenario if you're a population pessimist, but obviously best case scenario if you care about aging. But even in this crazy, crazy scenario, what you find is that the global population in 2050 is currently projected to be 9.8 billion people. If we literally cancel aging in a couple of years time, then that goes up to 11.6 billion. Now that is more, and it's not nothing, it's about 16% more people. But 16% isn't that huge an amount of extra mouths to feed, isn't that huge an extra sort of impact on our carbon emissions and that kind of stuff. I'd happily work 16% harder to reduce my carbon footprint if it suddenly meant we didn't have any of that suffering, we didn't have the Alzheimer's, we didn't have the cancer, we didn't have the heart disease, we didn't have the frailty, we didn't have, you know, grandparents unable to play with their grandkids because they're too, too unwell. I just think that the, the benefits massively outweigh the disbenefits, and specifically in the case of population, I think it's a smaller increase than most people think. But what I should say, just as a final comment, is I really think that the societal change, the thing I get asked most about when I give talks on this, and in a way it sort of surprises me, because you know you might think people would be like, well, what can I do to extend my own lifespan, or what are the most promising you know drugs that are coming, are they going to be in time for me? People are really worried about these ethical issues. And so in order to address that, there's actually a free chapter of my book that you can check out uh, on all the different eth ethical ramifications, which you can find at ageless.link slash ethics. And that's available in all kinds of different formats to download. So uh, do check that out if you've got any ethical quandaries that I obviously haven't managed to answer in that, in that very short answer to the question. No, that was a great uh, answer. And uh, I would like to add that... Uh, Probably if we all knew that we're going to be around this planet uh, uh, for much longer, uh, a lot of people would take uh, climate change and make uh, this planet uh, livable for longer a lot more seriously. Definitely, because I mean, if you're going to be around in time for that to happen, suddenly it's not just your children or your grandchildren, it's, it's a rather direct concern of yours. <laughs>
Indeed. Well, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, talking to us about uh, all thing aging. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to IFL Science, The Big Questions. Head over to iflscience.com and don't forget to sign up to our newsletter so you don't miss out on the biggest stories each week. Until next time.